Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 6.4, The Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, Hobbit Legendarium. Welcome back to Musings on History. This is the fourth episode in the series titled History and Fantasy. And today's episode is about the epic high fantasy series written by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, and its companion novels, The Silmarillion and The Hobbit, which, along with other books, make up the Middle-earth legendarium. J.R.R. Tolkien, the English writer, poet, philologist, and academic, served as the Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon and Fellow of Pembroke College, Oxford from 1925 to 1945, and the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature and Fellow of Merton College, Oxford from 1945 to 1959. And his study of Anglo-Saxon history and culture, as well as his affinity for languages, deeply influenced his world building and lore. After J.R.R. Tolkien died on 2 September 1973, his son Christopher published a series of works based on his father's extensive notes and unpublished manuscripts, including The Silmarillion. These, together with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, form a connected body of tales, poems, fictional histories, invented languages, and literary essays about a fantasy world called Arda and within it Middle-earth. Chapter 1, The Norse Mythology That Inspires Middle-Earth So much in the same way that the various Germanic languages share a lot of root words and phrases while having varying syntaxes, phonetics, and grammar rules, Germanic mythology shares many of the same roots but has varying interpretations, pantheons, and stories as well. Tolkien was a professor of Anglo-Saxon language and culture and considered it his life's mission to preserve the Anglo-Saxon heritage of England. The Anglo-Saxons were a cultural group whose origins trace back to the 5th century invasion and settlement of Britain by North Germanic tribes such as the Angles, Saxons, Jews, Frisii, Chaucy, and others. These diverse Germanic language speakers in Britain eventually developed a common cultural identity as Anglo-Saxons in juxtaposition to the Britonic Picts in Scotland and the various Celtic groups in southwestern England and Wales. The settlement of the Anglo-Saxons led to the establishment of the Heptarchy, which were Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in the south and east of Britain, later followed by the rest of modern England and the southeast of modern Scotland. Tolkien himself was from a family of middle-class craftsmen who originated in the East Prussian town of Kreuzberg. And in his youth, he was influenced by the post-Romanticism movement that developed in Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Post-Romanticism wanted to bring passion back to earth, find beauty, sensuality, and meaning in our daily, real, and contingent lives, and place women side by side to men at the center of a mutual artistic inspiration and creation, according to the Art and Popular Culture Encyclopedia. When John Ronald Rule Tolkien was three, his father died in South Africa, and his mother Mabel raised him and his younger brother Hilary in the English countryside in Sarehole, a hamlet in Worcestershire outside of Birmingham. Mabel taught the boys at home, and J.R., as Tolkien was called in childhood, was a very keen pupil learning to read by the age of three. He uh, also enjoyed exploring the countryside and visiting places such as Sarehole Mill, Mosley Bog, and the Clint, Licky, and Malvern Hills, which would later inspire scenes in his books, along with nearby towns and villages such as Bromsgrove, Alcester, and Alvachurch, and places such as his Aunt Jane's farm, Bag Inn, which later became the name of the ancestral home of the Bagginses of Hobbiton. 
This bucolic setting inspired the Shire, but the overall epic story of the Lord of the Rings was inspired by the Nordic epic, po epic poems, Volsinga Saga and the Elder Edda, and in particular, the story of Sigurd, the Volsung and the fall of the Nibelungs. This is not a comparison that Tolkien was keen to admit to, partially because he hated it when people would ask him about his references because he thought that that was less important than the message that he was trying to convey. And partially because the German composer Robert Wagner, among, and who was another post-romantic artist, had already made the story famous in his four-opera cycle, Der Ring des Nibelungen. And Tolkien considered Wagner and sadly Shakespeare to be artists that he personally disliked, which kind of has me fucked up right now. The story is split into four parts, with part one being the story of Sigmund, the son of King Volsung, who is attending the wedding feast of his sister Signy to King Sigir of the Goths, when the god Odin shows up and inexplicably, at least inexplicably to me, drives a sword into a tree trunk. But one of the things about stories involving Odin is that nothing he does really makes sense. Like sometimes it makes sense at the end and sometimes it never does. Though everyone tries to draw the sword from the tree, personally, I would have just looked at him like, okay, and left it there and went back to the wedding. Uh, Sigmund is the only man who can actually draw the sword from the tree. And the disappointed Sigir takes his new wife home, inviting Volsung to visit him, which sounds like a setup. Ah, but when Volsung does so, he's killed by Sigir. Yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. And Volsung's sons, including Sigmund, are taken prisoner. When they attempt to escape, they're all eaten by wolves, <laughs> save Sigmund, who escapes into the forest. Queen Signy then sends her son, Sin... Sinjotli to help Sigmund avenge their family slaughter and Sigmund and Sinjotli kill Sigir and burn down his hall then return to their ancestral home the hall of the Volsungs. Sigmund then marries Borgild while Sinjotli goes abroad with Borgild's brother quarrels with him and then kills him. On his return Sinjotli is poisoned by Borgild and she's turned out by Sigmund who instead marries Hjordis. Sigmund is later killed in battle and the pregnant Hjordis is taken to live in the hall of King Elf in Denmark. In part two, Hjordis gives birth to Sigurd, who is raised by a cunning old man named Riagin. And when he comes of age, Sigurd asks King Elf of Denmark for a horse from his stables. King Elf tells Sigurd to choose the one he likes best and Sigurd takes the best horse and names it Grani. Riagin then convinces Sigurd to attack the dragon Fafnir who is actually Regan's brother that is sitting on a cursed golden horde and who killed their father, Hredmar, in pursuit of the cursed gold ring, Andra and, and Varanat. Regan is old, but he still wants vengeance for his father's murder by his now dragon brother. And he tries and fails to forge an adequate sword for Sigurd, but Sigurd instead produces the shattered fragments of Odin's sword, which had been passed down to him. Um, and that's the one that his father had pulled from the tree trunk. And from these fragments, Riggin forges a mighty sword named the Wrath by Sigurd. Sigurd makes his way to Fafnir's lair, kills him, drinks his blood, roasts and eats his heart, and that gives him the power to understand bird speech and to read the hearts of men. He finds out that Regan intends to kill him because Sigurd has usurped him as a metal worker when he remade the Sword of Odin. And so Sigurd kills Regan and takes Fafnir's treasure for himself. But remember, it's cursed. On his journey homeward, Sigurd comes across an unearthly blaze on the slopes of Hinfell. He rides straight into it and comes unharmed into the heart of the fire where he finds a beautiful sleeping woman clad in armor. He wakes her and she tells him that she's Brynhild, a maiden, a handmaiden of Odin, whom he has left on Midgard as punishment for her disobedience. Sigurd and Brynhild pledge themselves to one another and Sigurd places a ring from Fafnir's hoard on her finger. Again, it's cursed 
and then leaves. So the, the dragon is Smog. The horde is uh, the dwarf horde. And it's cursed by a dwarf. And uh, Sigurd, in this instance, is... What's that guy's name? Aragorn, the heir of Elendil. And I can't remember his name. The guy who initially cuts the one ring off of Sauron's hand and then stupidly puts it on his own as he's leaving the battle. Can't remember his name. Starts with an I. Moving right along, though. In part three, the scene changes to the court of Gwiki, the giant king of Nibelung. Gwiki's daughter, Gudrun, has a dream in which she encounters a beautiful but ominous falcon and takes it to her breast. Anxious to learn the meaning of this dream, she rides to visit Brynhild, who tells her that she will marry a king, but that her life will be darkened by war and death. Gudrun then returns home with this information and for some stupid reason gets married. Like if somebody tells me, yeah, that bird landing on your chest means that you're going to marry a king, but your life's not going to be great. I'd be like, oh, okay. So if any kings come around or anybody, period, comes around talking about marriage, I'm just going to say, nah, I'm good, actually. But not Gudrun. She's a pick me. Sigurd revisits Brynhild and they again declare their love for one another, but don't get married. And then Sigurd rides to the Nibelung court where he joins them in making war on the Southland and wins great glory for himself. The witch Grimhild, who's Gudrun's mother, then gives Sigurd a potion that makes him fall in love with Gudrun and marry her, intending to give his first wife, Brynhild, she's not really his wife, actually, to Gudrun's brother Gunnar as a present, a wedding present for the family. Sigurd visits the fire surrounding Brynhild again, but this time he's disguised as Gunnar and he reminds Brynhild that she's to marry whoever overcomes the supernatural fire. And a reluctant and quite stupid, because somebody already did that, Brynhild relents and agrees to marry the man that she thinks is Gunnar. Brynhild goes to the Nibelung land and reluctantly carries out her promise. But then um, Gudrun spitefully tells her how Sigurd deceived her into marrying Gunnar in the first place. So Brynhild, who is rightfully upset, then urges her new husband Gunnar and his brothers Hogni and Guttorm to kill Sigurd. So Guttorm murders Sigurd as he lies in bed, but the dying Sigurd throws his sword and kills Guttorm as he leaves. Brynhild, filled with remorse, commits suicide so that she and Sigurd can be burned on a single funeral pyre. Why, though? Like, he clearly played you. Okay. In part four, the widow Gudrun marries Brynhild's brother, King Atli. But as the years pass by, her memories of Sigurd do not fade and she longs for vengeance. She reminds Atli of Fafnir's hoard and urges him to win it for himself. Atli then invites the surviving Nibelung brothers, Gunnar and Hogni, to a feast. And when they arrive, he threatens them with death if they don't give him the treasure. Gunnar and Hogni defy him to do his worst, and a battle breaks out in Atli's hall. The Nibelung brothers are overwhelmed by the superior force, tied up and murdered. Then Atli holds a victory feast at the end at the end of which he and all his court lie sleeping drunkenly in the hall. Gudrun, having lost everyone she loves, partially because of her own actions, burns down the hall, killing Atli with a sword thrust and then throws herself from a cliff to her death. So that was mostly unnecessary and really dramatic as hell. But anyway... Tolkien insisted that the only resemblance between his work and Wagner's were the two golden rings, which is bullshit. (laughs) But the motifs of the riddle contest, the cleansing fire, and the broken weapon preserved for an heir all occur occur in both works, as of course does the theme of the Lord of the Ring as the Slave of the Ring, or in Wagnerian terms, this ring is hair, all this ring is snicked. 
In Arthur Morgan's medieval, Victorian, and modern Tolkien, Wagner, and the Ring, Morgan emphasizes the difference in temperament that shapes how the two men use this ring. Tolkien does not, like Wagner, oppose power with romantic love, but instead with the cold heroism of the old heroic North. More importantly, he shows how Tolkien's conception of the ring, he who was able to derive much more from the earlier Nordic source material due to his being an Anglo-Saxon studies academic, is nonetheless almost certainly influenced by the composer's very modern association of the ring with machinery, as exemplified by the parallel images of Nebelheim and and Isengard. Most importantly, Morgan pinpoints Albrecht's curse on Das Rangold as encapsulating all the major features of Tolkien's ring and proceeds to summarize them as follows. There is one ring only. The ring came by a curse, which is now transferred. It confers unlimited power on its possessor. Its ownership will now bring no joy, only misery. It will gradually consume its possessor with anxiety It will be sought by all who do not possess it, yet it will bring its possessor no contentment. Its possessor is given the title of Lord of it. Possession will be the living death and it will bind its possessor even in death. The Lord of the Ring shall become its slave. Finally, Morgan makes the telling suggestion that in 1939, when Tolkien was drafting his Hobbit sequel, the influence of Wagner became stronger as Hitler's intentions became more obvious. Historian David Day also makes this last point, albeit a little clumsily, when he points out that Hitler's perversion of Germanic mythology outraged Tolkien and may have even inspired him to write The Lord of the Rings as a deliberate challenge to Wagner, who, for what it's worth, died in 1883 and in life, claimed Jewish ancestry through his father. Nonetheless, Adolf Hitler did admire Wagner and praise the heroic Teutonic nature and said greatness lies in the heroic. So it makes sense that Tolkien, who is a British veteran of the First World War, a staunch monarchist, and an English patriot who was sensitive to his German last name and ancestry during the First and Second World Wars, would have hated comparisons of his work to Wagner's. Now, Sensitivity to Aryan supremacy idealization aside, Tolkien was inspired by Norse mythology in other areas as well. Now, I feel like kind of an idiot for not noticing this this whole time, but the Einar, the Einar and the Valar of Tolkien's legendarium are analogous to the Aesir and Vanir of Norse mythology. In Norse mythology, the Aesir were the gods of the principal pantheon in the Norse religion. They include Odin, who was the god of wisdom, healing, death, royalty, the gallows, knowledge, war, battles, victory, sorcery, poetry, frenzy, the runic alphabet, and he is the husband of Frigg. Frigg is the goddess of marriage, prophecy, clairvoyance, and motherhood, and the mother of the gods Baldur and Holder. Holder is a blind god who was tricked by Loki into accidentally slaying his brother Balder with an arrow made of mistletoe. And honestly, I feel like way too much blame is placed on Loki. I'm a Loki apologist, if you didn't know. But honestly, I really do feel like too much blame is placed on Loki for making sure, for, you know, being the person who found out that out of all the beasts and creepy crawlies and plants and everything on earth, Frigga forgot to ask the humble mistletoe, please don't hurt my son, Balder. And then why would Holder, who knows damn well that he's blind, why would he like pick up a bow and arrow and shoot it in the first place? You don't know where the hell you're aiming. And you knew that long before Loki showed up. So honestly, I feel like people use Loki the same way Christians use the devil as a way to like, rationalize their own stupidity but anyway yeah loki uh tricked holder into accidentally slaying balder with an arrow made of mistletoe then there's thor a hammer wielding god associated with lightning thunder storms sacred groves and trees strength the protection of mankind and also hallowing and male virility then there's balder the son of God Odin and the goddess Frigg, whose death as, is seen as the first in a chain of events that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the gods at Ragnarok. 
And then there's Tyr, a war god who sacrifices his hand to the monstrous wolf Fenris, who bites off his limb while the gods bind the animal. And he is foretold of being consumed by the similarly monstrous dog, Garmer, during the events of Ragnarok. The Aesir were connected with power and war, and in the epic poem Valespa, the Aesir go to war with the Vanir, who are a group of gods associated with health, fertility, wisdom, and the ability to see the future. The god Jordur and his children Freyr and Freyja are mentioned in the poetic Edda as Vanir and the unnamed sister wife of Jodor and the being Vasir, who was born from the saliva of the Aesir and the Vanir during their peace agreement, are also attested as Vanir gods. Now, while not attested as Vanir in the Eddas, the gods Heimdall and Ullr have also been theorized as potential members of the group. Tolkien's Aenir are the immortal spirits that have existed since before creation. These were the first beings made of the thought of Eru Eluvatar, the supreme being of the universe and creator of all existence. The Aenir made beautiful music while in the void that brought existence into being, and this is called the music of the Aenir or Enulindale, in response to themes introduced by Eru. This universe was called Ea in in Quenya, and Earth was called Arda. Some of the Aenir felt a deep connection to aspects of creation and thus entered it, becoming Valar and personifications of whatever part of creation that they most strongly identified with. Manwe was the leader of the Valar and most strongly identified with the air and spirits of the air, so they all served him, anything that flew. He was king of the Valar, husband of Varda, brother of the Dark Lord Melkor, and king of Arda. Varda was the Valar responsible for the outlining of the stars and the heavens above Arda. She was also known as Elbereth and Sindarin Elvish. Ulmo was the Valar responsible for the control of the oceans of Arda. A lover of water, Ulmo was one of Arda's chief architects and had a close friendship with Manwe. He always distrusted Melkor and the Dark Lord feared the sea almost as much as he feared Varda because the sea cannot be tamed. Melkor was the first Dark Lord and the primordial source of evil in Ea. Originally the most powerful of the Aenor created by Eru, Melkor rebelled against his creator out of pride and sought to corrupt Arda. After committing many evils in the First Age, such as the theft of the Silmarils, which resulted in the Valar and the elves referring to him as Morgoth and the destruction of the two lamps and the two trees of Valinor, Morgoth was defeated by the host of Valinor in the War of Wrath. As punishment, he was banished from Arda into the void, though it was prophesied that he would one day return. Ayula was the smith of the Valar, the lord of the earth and all that's underneath, and the husband of Yavanna. He loved to create things, and so he created the dwarves when he got impatient waiting for the elves to wake. The elves were supposed to be the firstborn, and when Eru discovered that Ayule had tried to jump ahead of his plans, Ayule apologized and was about to destroy the dwarves that he had created until Eru said that he would adopt him. But he warned that the dwarves and the elves would have enmity for all time. Yavanna Kementari was the fruit giver, the lady of earth and the wife of Ayule who cared for all the plants and trees of Arda. When she expressed concern that her husband's dwarves would use their axes to destroy her forest, she was given leave to create the Ents as guardians of the trees. Ermo was the lord and master of dreams, visions, and desires, creator of the Male or Path of Dreams, and the husband of Este. He was sometimes called Lorien after the name of his dwelling place in Valinor. He was the younger brother of Nemo and Niena. Nemo, who was sometimes called Mandos after his dwelling place, was the Vala responsible for the judgment of the spirits or Fea of all elven dead. He also had a responsibility for pronouncing the dooms and judgments of Eru under Manwe. So when the Noldor, led by Fanor, swore the oath of Fanor after Morgoth stole the Silmarils, Ermo pronounced the doom of the Noldor, which effectively banished all the departing Noldoran from Valinor, whether they took the oath or not. Vare was the Vala responsible for the weaving of the story of Arda. 
Her storied webs covered the halls of Mandos, where she lived. With the passage of time and its many ages, her woven tapestries expanded and clothed all the walls of the Halls of the Dead. Este the Gentle, Lady of Healing and Rest, and the wife of Irmo, was the Vala responsible for the healing of the hurt and weary. Nina was the Vala responsible for the mercy and grief spread across Arda. She was the sister of Mandos and Irmo and had no spouse. Her part in the music of the Aenir was one of deep sadness from which grief entered the world at its beginning. She had dominion over the halls of Nina, which were on the western edge of Alinor, looking over the sea. Arome Alderon the Huntsman, the Lord of Forests, and the Great Rider was the Vala responsible for the hunt. He was the brother of Nessa and the husband of Vana. During the years of the trees, after most of the Valar had retreated from Middle-earth and hidden themselves in Amun, Arome still hunted in the forests of Middle-earth on occasion. Thus, it was he who discovered the elves when they first awoke at Cunavin and named them the Eldar. Thereafter, he remained close in friendship with the elves. And it was he who invited the elves to come to Valinor, causing the sundering of the elves. Vana was the Vala responsible for the preservation of the youth made for all life in Arda. She was also known as Vana the Everyoung, and the Mayar, Mayar Melian was her attendant for a time. Nessa was ranked least among the Valar. She was notable for her speed, being fast as an arrow in movement, for which reason she was called Nessa the Swift. Nessa married Tolkas, aka Tolkas the Strong, during the spring of Arda. Tolkas was the last of the Ainu to descend into Arda when he heard of the war with Melkor slash Morgoth. When he joined the war, the scales tipped in the Aratar's favor, so the Aratar are the good Vala. The Maiar were primordial spirits created to help the Valar shaped the world. They were numerous, but not all of them were named. Their chiefs were Elanwe, the banner bearer and herald of Manwe, and Ilmare, the handmaid of Varda. Melian was a Maya who served various Valar before she went to Middle-earth and met the elven king Eluthingol and founded the great elven kingdom of Doriath in the First Age. It is through Melian and Thingol's marriage and their daughter and their daughter Luthien, sorry, it was in the Second Age, that both Aragorn of the Dúnedain and Arwen, the half-elven, are born. Five of the Maiar in the Third Age became the incarnated Istari, or wizards, and the Dark Lord Sauron and the Balrogs were also Maiar, but they were corrupted Maiar who served Morgoth. Tolkien was inspired by the orders of angels and Jewish and Christian theology to create these Maiar, with Sauron being a Lucifer archetype. Now, although it's not considered Norse mythology or folklore because the Norse languages are Germanic and Finnish is Uralic, the Kalevala is a compilation of Finnish and Karelian folklore and mythology compiled by Elias Lonrat, a Finnish physician, philologist, and collector of traditional Finnish oral poetry who is sometimes regarded as the Finnish Tolkien. The Kalevala tells the creation story from the perspective of the Finnish people, describing the controversies and retaliatory voyages between the peoples of the land of Kalevala, called the Vianola, and the land of Poyola. Throughout the epic, there are various protagonists and antagonists, as well as the mythic creation and eventual robbery of the wealth-making machine, Sampo. The Kalevala ends with the Finnish people's decision to embrace Christianity and set aside the old gods and stories. And it's regarded as the national epic of Karelia and Finland and is one of the most significant works of Finnish literature. The Kalevala was instrumental in the development of the Finnish national identity, including the Finns' increased resistance to Russification and through language, ultimately leaning to, leading to Finland's independence from Russia in 1917. As a schoolboy in Birmingham, Tolkien came across the Kalevala and specifically the tale of Kalervo in, in particular. Kalervo was an orphan boy raised into slavery, a tragic hero who commits incest in the dark forests of Karelia and hurls himself on his own blade. Tolkien, who was by then an orphan himself, was very much taken by the tale and the Kalevala itself. And during his first year at Oxford, he began to write his own version of the Finnish myth, but never finished it. 
Tolkien later went on to invent his own elvish languages and to write his books about hobbits, elves, and dragons while working as a professor of Anglo-Saxon and Middle English. Tolkien used numerous plot elements from the Kalevala in his own novels, including a powerful magical object, incest, battles between brothers, and orphan heroes setting out on quests. Historian John Garth says that, Tolkien was drawn to the Kalevala because it was a national myth and he wished that England had one. He had written in his letters, Britain had the Celtic stories of Arthur and Bran the Blessed, but Anglo-Saxon England had not preserved its mythology. With the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien wanted to give England its own Kalevala. Several characters, many of them elves, are drawn from characters in the Kalevala, including Vinamoinen the central character of the Kalevala, who is a wizard-like shamanistic hero with a magical power of song and music similar to that of Orpheus. He's a demigod born of Ilmatar, a virgin spirit of the air, and contributes to the creation of Earth as it is today. Gandalf, similarly, is a wizard, one of the Astari Order, and the leader and mentor of the Fellowship of the Ring in Tolkien's Legendarium. Now, he's analogous to Vinamoinen, but his name comes from Old Norse. Uh, Diverka, wait, hold on. Vergatal, which means Catalog of Dwarves in the Valespa. Both Tolkien and other scholars have likened Gandalf to the Norse god, Norse god Odin in his Wanderer guise. And Odin as the Wanderer is also likened to Vanamoinen due to the similarities in the use of magic and poetry. The Kalevala and the Finnish language also influenced Tolkien's construction of the elves and their languages, particularly Kenya, which is spelled Q-U-E-N-Y-A. Tolkien began devising the language around 1910 and restructured the grammar several times until it reached its final state. Within Tolkien's legendarium, Kenya is the language of the High Elves, or Eldar, the Noldor, and the Vanyar who follow the Vala Orome and the High Elven kings Ingwe, Fingwe, and Elwe to Valinor. Of these two groups of elves, most of the Noldor returned to Middle-earth where they met the Sindarin-speaking Grey Elves. The Noldor eventually adopted Sindarin and used Kenya primarily as a ritual or poetic language, whereas the Vanyar and Noldor who stayed behind in Valinor continued to use Kenya. In this way, the Kenya language was symbolic of the high status of those elves, the firstborn of the races of Middle-earth, because of their close connection to Valinor and its decreasing use also became symbolic of the slowly declining elven culture of Middle-earth. In the second age of Middle-earth's chronology, the men of Numenor learned the Kenya tongue. In the third age, the time of the setting of the Lord of the Rings, Kenya was learned as a second language by all elves of Noldoran origin, and it continued to be used in spoken and written form, but the mother tongue of the Noldor was now Sindarin, which was originally the native tongue of the Grey Elves. As the Noldor remained in Middle-earth, their Noldoran dialect of Kenya also gradually diverged from the Vanyarin dialect spoken in Valinor, undergoing both sound changes and grammatical changes. The grammar of Kenya was influenced by Finnish, an agglutinative language. An agglutinative language is a type of synthetic language with morphology that primarily uses agglination. Now, what is agglination? I'm glad you asked. Agglination is a linguistic process of morphology in which complex words are formed by stringing together morphemes without changing them in spelling or phonetics. So I bet you're wondering now, like, what the hell is a morpheme? So a morpheme is the smallest meaningful unit in a, in a language. The main difference between a morpheme and a word is that a morpheme sometimes does not stand alone, but a word, by definition, always does. In English, when a morpheme can stand alone, it's considered a root because it has a meaning of its own. But in Latin, many roots can't stand alone. For instance, the Latin root reg means king, but it must always be suffixed with a case marker like an S or an IS or regi or something like that. 
Tolkien almost never borrowed words directly from real languages into Kenya, with one major exception being the name Eärendil, which he found in an old English poem by Kenwolf. Yet the Finnish influence on Kenya and other constructed languages sometimes extended to the vocabulary. A few Kenya words such as tool, which means come, and anta, which means give, clearly have a Finnish origin. Other forms that appear to have been borrowed are actually coincidental, such as the Finnish kirja, which means book, and the Kenya kirja, or kirja, which means ship. Tolkien invented the Valoran Kinderan brute kir, from which sprang his Kenya word, kirja. Chapter 2, Tolkien's England in the Legendarium. So as I said in chapter one, Tolkien was deeply influenced by his childhood in the Worcestershire and Oxfordshire countryside. And this West Midlands countryside was the inspiration for the Shire, an inland area of Middle Earth that was exclusively settled by hobbits. The hobbits, also called the Shire folk by humans from nearby Bree, were largely sheltered from the goings-on in the rest of Middle Earth in the First and Second Ages, which are the ages of the Valar and the Elves. Ooh, excuse me. It is in the northwest of the continent, in the region of Eredor and the kingdom of Arnor. The Shire is the scene of action at the beginning and end of Tolkien's The Hobbit and of the sequel, The Lord of the Rings. Five of the protagonists in these stories are natives of the Shire, Bilbo Baggins, who is the title character of The Hobbit, and the four Hobbit members of the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo Baggins, Samwise Gamgee, Marriadoc Brandybuck called Mary, and Peregrine Pippin Took. The main action in The Lord of the Rings returns to the Shire near the end of the book and the scouring of the Shire, when the homebound Hobbits find the area under the control of Saruman in disguise and decide to set things to rights. According to Thomas Allen Shippey, the British scholar and professor of Middle and Old English literature, as well as medievalism and modern fantasy and science fiction, not only is the Shire reminiscent of England, Tolkien carefully constructed the Shire as an element-by-element calc upon England. A calc is a word or phrase borrowed from another language by literal word-for-word or root-for-root translation. The three origins of the people of the Shire, who are the Stores, Harfoots, and Fallowhides, corresponds directly to the three tribes that made up Anglo-Saxon England, the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. The Shire had two legendary founders whose names meant horse, Marco and Blanco. Just like Anglo-Saxon England had two legendary founders, Hengus and Horsa. The organization of the Shire, with its mayors, moots, thanes, and sheriffs, was similar to Anglo-Saxon England during the Heptarchy, and the place names of the Shire correspond to place names in England that were founded during the Anglo-Saxon era like Nabottle and Buckland, which are both towns in the Shire and in real life in England. In the scouring of the Shire, the antagonists are Sharky and Wormtongue, who are the fallen Maiar and wizard Saruman and his lackey Grima Wormtongue. Grima derives from the Old English and Icelandic word for mask or specter, and Grima Wormtongue is described as an archetypal syncophant like Peter Pettigrew in the Harry Potter series. Previously, Grima had finessed his way into the court of King Theoden of Rohan, a strong kingdom with a famed cavalry called the Rohirrim. Once Grima came into Theoden's confidence, Saruman worked a spell on Theoden that weakened him and made him choose not to send the Rohirrim to the aid of the other great kingdom of men, Gondor. Saruman had chosen to work with Sauron to divide the realms of men from one another and the men from the dwarves and the elves so that Sauron could easily conquer all of Middle-earth, divide and conquer tactics basically. When Gandalf arrived in Rohan, he broke the spell that Saruman had over Theoden as he had recently been reborn as Gandalf the White and was now more powerful than Saruman. Later, during the Battle of Helm's Deep, Pippin and Merry had convinced the Ents to destroy Saruman's Tower of Orthanc, where he was growing his own army of Uruk-hai, genetically modified orcs, and was destroying the Fangorn Forest in the process, which obviously angered the Ents, who were the protectors of the trees. So Saruman, who was trying to double-cross Sauron and take the One Ring for himself, vowed vengeance on the hobbits for the destruction of Orthanc, 
And while Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo were off saving the world, Saruman took the disguise of Sharky and was destroying the Shire socially and environmentally. He takes some of the less savory humans and hobbits that live in the area and install them as sheriffs whose job it is to terrorize the population. And he tears down old buildings and cuts down a lot of trees, essentially gentrifying the Shire and using his machinery to just foul up the place. When the hobbits return home, Sam, Mary, and Pippin rouse a resistance and fight the Battle of Bywater, where they kill most of the ruffians who have settled in the Shire and find Sharky and Wormtongue living in Bag End, which Frodo had sold to his relatives, the Sackville Bagginses, before leaving on his quest. Saruman reveals himself to the hobbits, and most of them want to kill him, but Frodo insists that they don't need to kill anyone else unless their lives are threatened. When Frodo tells Saruman to leave the Shire but gives Wormtongue the option to stay, Saruman attempts to stab Frodo, but his, bra- his blade breaks against Frodo's co- coat of mithril, which is a very hard dwarven-made metal. And he tells Frodo that Wormtongue killed his cousin Lotho Baggins. Wormtongue then slices Saruman's throat and is immediately shot dead by hobbit archers, and Saruman's corpse turns to dust and flies away in the wind. The scouring of the Shire is a caricature of both fascism and Stalinist socialism in the ways that Tolkien saw the Nazis use torture and the threat of violence to ensure collaboration and in the way that Stalin purged his dissenters. Some, like the Australian author Hal Kolbach, have argued that the scouring of the Shire is also a critique of post-World War II British socialism under the Attlee Labour government. He noted that the rule and redistribution-heavy Saruman regime owed much to the drabness, bleakness, and bureaucratic regulation of post-war Britain. Jay Richards and Jonathan Witt concede that the chapter also has wider themes, such as the ugliness of vengeance and the ecological degradation that comes with suburban development. But Tolkien's letters also demonstrate his dislike of British social democracy, which he felt posed as morally superior. In this view, he was very much the typical Briton of the 1940s and 50s, blaming socialism for the country's financial woes when unfettered capitalism and the British ruling class's near constant fraternization with European fascists in the 1930s was why the country had fallen so low after the war. The end of the Second World War marked the beginning of the end of the British Empire, and Tolkien and his generation saw themselves as the last and fading vestiges of a bygone Halcyon era which I will reiterate was not a halcyon era for the colonized. And this is reflected in the elves' obsession with fading in Middle-earth and returning to Valinor. The elves were the firstborn, and from their viewpoint, Middle-earth was created specifically for them to dwell in. Being that Eru tends not to reveal too much of their plans, only revealing certain strands of the music of the Aenor to the Aenor at specific times, there was never anyone to contradict the elves in this belief. Therefore, the elves have a strange superiority slash inferiority complex that they see themselves as the only true stewards of Middle-earth, but they're jealous of the mortality of men since men die, die, but Elves don't die, they fade, and then they dwell in the Hall of Mandos. So, like, the elves never really lose their sense of consciousness even after they go to the Halls of Mandos. And you know who else had a simultaneous inferiority and superiority complex? That's right, musers, post-war Britons. The British had been the empire where the sun never set. And suddenly, all of that was yanked from them, and attention was either diverted to the two new superpowers on the block, the USA and the USSR, both of whom the British saw as provincial backwaters and upstarts. Or the people of the globe had rejected the Union Jack for a flag and government of their own choosing, and the British had thought that they were doing the world a favor by allowing the colonized peoples of the world to somewhat consider themselves British subjects, albeit without any of the perks typically associated with that. The end of the Second World War changed the geopolitical landscape almost overnight, and many Britons felt lost in the shuffle 
and disregarded in a world that they had been raised to see as theirs for the taking and remaking. Similarly, the end of the War of the Ring ushered in the age of men who procreate faster and in greater numbers than the elves, and so were poised to overtake them as the predominant species of Middle-earth. And then to add insult to injury, the hero of the War of the Ring was a hobbit, a small and, to the elves, insignificant race of beings that hitherto they hadn't even taken notice of. Just like the USA was positioned as the savior of the free world at the conclusion of World War II. And prior to both world wars, the USA had been seen as kind of an afterthought and little cousin to Great Britain in geopolitical affairs. Tolkien's works are beloved by environmentalists who see him as a visionary that warned against development at the expense of the countryside. But his works are not explicitly activist in nature, Rather, his environmentalism is mostly expressed through finger-wagging and heavy sighing over an idyllic pre-war Britain that never actually existed, or at least did so at the expense of millions in other countries. In this, he is again a typical Briton of his time, lamenting the fall of his beloved country from the status of great colonial power and the death of British mercantilism as the wave of independence movements that followed the Second World War. Uh, Tolkien espouses his love of Western agrarianism through his works as well. In Ents, Elves, and Eriador, Matthew Dickerson and Jonathan Evans show how Tolkien anticipated some of the tenets of modern environmentalism in the imagined world of Middle-earth and the races in which it is inhabited. Agrarianism is evident in the pastoral lifestyle and sustainable agriculture practices of the hobbits as they harmoniously cultivate the land for food and goods. The elves practice aesthetic, sustainable horticulture as they shape their forest environs to, into an elaborate garden. To complete Tolkien's vision, the Ents of Fangorn Forest represent what Dickerson and Evans label fericulture, which seeks to preserve wilderness in its most natural form. Unlike the Ent wives who are described as cultivating food in tame gardens, the Ents risk eventual extinction for their beliefs. These ecological philosophies reflect an aspect of Christian stewardship rooted in Tolkien's Catholic faith. Dickerson and Evans define it as stewardship of the kind modeled by Gandalf, a stewardship that nurtures the land rather than exploiting its life-sustaining capacities to the point of exhaustion. Gandalfian stewardship is at odds with the forces of greed exemplified by Sauron and Saruman, who, with their lust for power, ruin the land they inhabit, serving as a dire warning of what comes to pass when stewardly care is corrupted or ignored. Chapter 3, War and Trauma in Middle-Earth As I mentioned in the earlier chapters, J.R.R. Tolkien was a veteran of the First World War and fought in the Battle of the Somme which was one of the deadliest battles in human history with an estimated death toll of upwards of 1.5 million men from 1 July to 16 November, 1916. Tolkien had opted to delay his enlistment into uh, the British army until after he finished his degree at Oxford, which led to his ostracization within his family and community. On 15 July 1915, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant with the Lincolnshire Fusiliers and trained in the English countryside for 11 months before deploying to Calais in northern France. Tolkien did not take to military life and hated having to boss around the NCOs and enlisted men. Tolkien and his unit arrived at the Somme in early July 1916. Uh, this battle, the Battle of the Somme, was intended to hasten a victory for the Allies who had been bogged down in a trench war of attrition with the Central Powers since the Battle of the Marne in 1914. The result was the staggering death toll that I just mentioned, zero Allied power objectives being uh, reached, and the Germans retreating just 100 miles back, but still firmly entrenched in, Europe, in France. I imagine that to Tolkien, who hadn't wanted Great Britain to really enter the war in the first place and was not all that excited to risk his life for nothing, the Battle of the Somme was a reflection of all his worst nightmares. 
senseless loss of life and ecological devastation as millions of acres of forest in France and the Low Countries were destroyed during this war. Further exacerbating the senselessness of the First World War was the fact that the two main instigators of the conflict, the Austro-Hungarians who declared war on the Kingdom of Serbia after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and the Serbians who had killed him in the illegally annexed Bosnia had each been defeated by the time the Battle of the Somme took place. Serbia was defeated in 1915 after the Austro-Hungarians had occupied the kingdom and the Austro-Hungarians had to withdraw most of their troops from both the Eastern and Western fronts after occupying Serbia and then Romania and thus weren't even part of the bloodiest battle in the entire war. Now, I'm not entirely sure Tolkien was aware of all of this when he got to the Somme in July 1916, but I can imagine that after finding that out, he was probably pretty pissed off. I know I would have been. The Battle of the Somme was poorly planned, as were other battles throughout the war. I mean, the whole war was just so pointless. And both sides over-relied on artillery and gas attacks to make up for their strategic and tactical shortcomings making the battlefield the literal stuff of nightmares. To make matters worse, the men who returned home from the Somme with shell shock, which is now called PTSD, were treated like lepers by the same people who would have shamed them as cowards had they not gone and fought in that useless war in the first place. So Hollywood tends to portray shell shock as like uncontrollable shakes. And indeed, many veterans were afflicted with palsies that affected them for the rest of their lives, But depression was the most common form of shell shock, characterized by a certain listlessness and inability to find joy in most things, as well as a restlessness that, if not properly directed, often led to criminal behavior. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about his experiences at the Somme and during the First World War in general, and his feelings fit the description of a war veteran suffering from PTSD-induced depression. Although most of the main characters in the Lord of the Rings trilogy either settled into their old lives and new responsibilities like Samwise Gamgee, or settled into a new life and new titles like Peregrine Took and Aragorn, Frodo Baggins exhibits a lot of the behaviors of J.R.R. Tolkien when he came back from France. Frodo is withdrawn and filled with regret at the way things had ended with Gollum, who he probably understood more as one of the few other beings in Middle-earth that had worn the One Ring and knew how it can affect a person. Frodo doesn't participate in the Battle of Bywater because he's like tired of bloodshed and violence and just just nonsense, like stop. And he doesn't seem to condone the violence and bloodshed either. And he responds really dully to Saruman attempting to stab him. And I mean, by that point, he'd already been stabbed like three times. So he's probably like, "Eh, what's one more? Eventually, Frodo basically gives up on Middle-earth and heads to Valinor with his uncle Bilbo, who I personally feel like he should have been way more upset with. Bilbo went on this grand adventure with the dwarves and managed to get custody of this cursed one ring. And then after living for 129 blissful years, he just fucks off to Rivendell and then to the Grey Havens, while his nephew has to endure the worst camping trip in history to dispose of a ring that he never even asked for. But I'm no Frodo Baggins because if Bilbo had played me like that, I would have punched him in his face the moment I got to Rivendell. I'm out here getting stabbed by ring waves and nearly turned into a barrel white and then almost drowning trying to run away from more ring waves. All because you won a stupid guessing game in a cave 100 years ago with Gollum. And then for Bilbo to still be alive at the end of the book after all that, oh, I'm so sorry, I just feel so stretched. Oh, oh, no, he would have had to finish what the fuck he started. But I'm ranting. Let me just let me just move on. Uh, one last point, though. The Battle of Pelennor Fields is supposed to be analogous to the Battle of the Somme and the Battle of the Catalanian Plains, where King Theodoric of the Visigoths fell from his horse and was trampled to death by his own men, which seems kind of shady because 
King Theoden of Rohan also dies on the battlefield at Pelennor Field. And I kind of feel like a king of horse lords deserves a better historical parallel than a guy who fell off his horse and died. The witch king of Angmar also dies at the Battle of Pelennor Field in a Macbethish kind of way, which how are you going to say you don't like Shakespeare, but you keep like biting his style? Just like George R.R. R. Martin, you don't have the fucking range. People keep coming for Shakespeare and they keep failing. But yeah, the Witch King of Angmar dies in this Macbethish kind of way. Actually, it's not even Macbethish. Like, you literally lifted it from Macbeth. You know, it was prophesied that the Witch King of Angmar couldn't be slain by any man. And then he gets stabbed in the face by Eowyn, who is no man. Same way that, you know, Macbeth gets killed by, I don't know, who the fuck was it? Macduff? I don't know who did it. I don't remember who did it, but I do remember that um, it was a technicality because it was prophesied that Macbeth would be fine because as long as, you know, no one who was born of a woman attempted to kill him. So he's like, oh, I'm straight then because literally everyone is born of a woman. Like, who the hell else are you going to be born of? But, you know, fates are tricky like that and... The guy who killed him was born from a C-section, which technically, but still, it's all about the fine print. So see, D&D, uh, &D, plot twists are that simple and they're crowd pleasers. You didn't have to do, even do all that much to subvert expectations. And this applies to you too, M. Night Shyamalan. Like you don't have to do a lot. People still appreciate the simple things. Tell somebody, oh, you'll never be harmed as long as someone born of a woman, uh, no one born of a woman can harm you. And so you think you're going around like, ooh, can't touch this until somebody who was born by C-section or a woman, because it says no man, just decides to like straight up stab you in the face. So in the film Return of the King, the Battle of Pelennor Fields is Seen as this like glorious adventure with this triumphant music and Legolas and Gimli are making quips at each other as they take down the war elephants and Merry and Pippin are somehow not being trampled underfoot in the first 10 minutes of the battle. But in the book, Tolkien describes the battle a lot more grimly with the ringways and the Nazgul and the absence of the Rohirrim and the previous fall of Osgiliath making the morale of the men of Gondor very low at the beginning of the battle. And then not too far away, Sam, Frodo, and Gollum are making their way to Mount Doom, which took considerably longer in the books. And Frodo is about to just say, fuck it and give up and take the one ring for himself and just figure it out from there. And he feels enormous guilt about this because everyone he's grown to care about as, you know, the rest of the fellowship and basically all of Middle Earth is assembling on Pelennor Field to fight a battle in which they're outgunned and outnumbered. Like they go into Pelennor Field knowing that they're going to lose, but they decide to go into this battle because Sauron is looking all around for Frodo. And if there's a battle going on right outside of Mordor at the Pelennor Field, then they figure there's not going to be a whole lot of people milling about at Mount Doom and Sauron's eye is going to be focused on the battle and not the two hobbits and the sort of hobbit looking thing that are making their way to Mount Doom to dispose of his ring. And Frodo's aware of, of the fact that they're like fighting in this Doom battle, probably going to die, all to give him a chance to drop this ring into the fires of Mount Doom and end it all. And Frodo is legit this close to just making their deaths be in vain because he's just so fucking tired at that point. So in the character of Frodo, Tolkien demonstrates the actual moral complexities that come with going to war and surviving them. Sentiments that were no doubt shared by many in his generation who were called the lost generation because after the First World War, all they wanted to do was drink absinthe and smoke long cigarettes and cut their hair into terrible bobs and live in the Florida Keys and write books. 
That's a Hemingway reference. Next episode, I'm headed behind the Iron Curtain where the author Andres Sapkowski captures the zeitgeist of post-Cold War Poland in the Witcher series. Join me next time for more Musings on History.